Hello, and welcome to Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines, people working to understand viruses and how they affect you. We are talking with virologists, students, and postdocs that belong to the American Society for Virology so that you can learn who they are and what they do. I am Larissa Thackray, and I am hosting this podcast from America's Heartland in St. Louis, Missouri. On September 29th, 2021, we talked with Judith Reyes-Baita, a graduate student in the Brindley Lab at the University of Georgia, who is investigating the role of phospholipids in the budding of vesicular stomatitis virus. So um, thanks for talking with us today. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So hi, my name is Judith Reyes Ballista. I was born and raised in Carolina, Puerto Rico to immigrant parents from the Dominican Republic. And now I'm a third year PhD student in infectious diseases at the University of Georgia under the mentorship of Dr. Melinda Bradley. Great. And can you tell us a little bit about how did you first become interested in science and then sort of subsequently virology? How did that happen for you? Yeah, so it definitely started um, in high school. I was like good at math and science and I had very traditional parents that wanted me to have a secure job. So for them, that meant um, that if I was good at math and science, I should be probably a physician. So I went to undergrad um, convinced that I was going to become a physician and not really knowing what other options I had if I liked sciences. So it wasn't until I went to undergrad that I had a TA that like talked to us about research and like that that was an option that we could um, explore. So I started doing research in undergrad thinking, oh, this will be a good thing to know, um, especially if I want to go to med school. But little did I know that I really like research. And I was like, I feel like this might be something that I actually want to pursue. Um, so between that and I also participated in some NIH funded um, programs like Rise and Mark that um, encouraged underrepresented minorities to participate in research and um, pursue higher education degrees. So I, between those two things, I started exploring specifically on research what I liked. And my first instinct was because vector borne diseases in the Caribbean and like tropical islands, it's very common. So like almost like flu in the States, we have like dengue and Zika and chikungunya. So I wanted to start by exploring um, those diseases that are transmitted by mosquitoes. So I started in multiple research experiences working on that. And then eventually I started participating in summer internships um, for example, I did a summer internship at Purdue working with Zika virus, and that was the first time I was working, focusing on the virus and um, protein-protein interactions with the hosts. And the mix between vector-borne diseases and mosquitoes, which I find fascinating, and viruses that I feel like do very um, amazing things in the cell, um, I decided to pursue a degree, just focus on viruses and those viruses that cause different vector-borne diseases. Cool. And I guess, um, how did you get to where you are today? So what were the choices or sort of how did you get to your PhD program that you're in right now? Yeah, so um, definitely I started with the research experiences at my home institution and then the Rise and Mark programs, which are um, NIH-funded programs that I mentioned before, 
they really encourage us not only to explore research in our home institutions, but also do research, um, summer research programs at different institutions in the States, just so we could have more opportunities to not only meet faculty in different grad schools, but also have more um, opportunities in terms of like topics to um, do research on because um, we did, like I did had options of research topics at my home institution, but the options were limited. Um, so definitely during undergrad, I spent pretty much every summer doing summer research internships, trying to find not only the topics that I really enjoy studying, but also uh, a grad school that I would see myself going to. Um, so that definitely helped solidify um, my like knowledge and experience in terms of like research techniques and like the type of questions that I wanted to answer but also um, try to have a better idea of what I was looking at when it came to applying to grad schools. So when it came to my senior year of undergrad, I started the process of applying to grad schools and I um, took into consideration those universities that had the research that I was most interested in. So I applied to um, many grad schools, around nine, and got different interviews. But at the end of the day, I took my decision to come to University of Georgia based on that they had the research that I found more, more most exciting. And I also met my current advisor during my interview process, and I felt like we had a really good like um, interaction. And I would see myself having a good mentor-mentee relationship throughout the PhD. So that was something that was very important for me. So that was the main reason why I chose to come to UGA. Cool. And can you tell us a little bit then about your lab, sort of like what the size is, um, maybe a little bit about what the sort of your mentee-mentor relationship is like, what you like about your lab, things like that. Yeah, so whenever I came to UDA, I went through a program that we would do three rotations our first semester. So I had the opportunity to rotate during um, in multiple different labs. And based on like my previous research experiences, I knew I wanted a mentor that wouldn't be too hands off. Like I wanted someone that I would be able to like meet frequently and um, console my like doubts to and be able to ask questions as much as I could. But I also wanted someone that would leave me the space to be as independent as I wanted to be. And I feel like with my mentor, I found that um, great balance where I felt like I could consult her if I had any doubts, but I also had the space to um, plan the experiments how I wanted to plan them and things like that. Um, I also like that it wasn't a huge lab. Um, so we have a mix between around five grad students right now and every grad student have their own undergrads but we have a good um, lab environment where people like talk to each other and we try to um, maintain like social events so we can like get to know each other and actually become friends with the people you work with and I feel like having a good environment in like the place you work and you go every day it was very important for me um, so that's something I really like about the lab. Great. And I guess then, can you tell us then now a little bit about your research? So sort of, I guess, what kind of what you're studying, but then also sort of what are the kinds of experiments that you're doing, the kind of techniques that you're using? Yes. 
So my project focuses on studying the role of phospholipids, specifically phosphatidylserine in the virus budding of vesicular somatitis virus. And my project started kind of um, based on a previous student um, study or research. So my lab mate, Marisa, has a paper where they were studying the role of phospholipids um, or phosphatidylserine in the budding process of Ebola virus. And in multiple experiments, she was using VSV as a control because we didn't expect um, VSV to have any type of relationship with phosphatidylserine when it was budding. But one of her experiments suggested that there might be a role of phosphatidylserine in the budding of VSV. So whenever I started in the lab, I um, started working on that project, basically looking at, okay, does VS um, plays a role in the budding of VSV? and how, if it does play a role, how specifically is doing that. So the types of experiments that we do, um, it's very um, effective and like useful that VSV is a VSL2 pathogen. It doesn't really cause any like human disease. Um, and one of the main reasons why a lot of people study it, it's because it doesn't cause human disease, but it does cause um, livestock or like infects livestock and it affects um, the livestock industry. But VSV, it's a very useful virus in terms that you can modify its glycoprotein and then use it as a serotype particles to induce immune responses against other viruses. So for example, Ebola virus, there is a vaccine that it's basically VSV genome with the Ebola virus glycoprotein. So um, we have been modifying VSV to be able to produce not only GFP, so it fluoresces green, and we're able to see under a fluorescent microscope how um, the infected cells glow green, basically. But also, we inserted an anulciferase um, gene in the matrix protein of VSV. And that basically produces viral particles that are expressing anulciferase. And that is a way to be able to quantify the amount of particles that we have either in like a supernatant or inside the cell um, and things like that. So one of the first experiments that we were working for this project was doing budding assays. So basically we use this virus that expresses nanoluciferase and infected cells and then collected both like supernatants and cell lysates and compared how is the budding efficiency based on luminescence levels. Um, in normal wild-type cells or cells that have more PS in the outer leaflet of the plasma membrane or cells that have less PS in the outer leaflet of the plasma membrane. And that was a very straightforward way to be uh, able to quantify how is the body efficiency different between cell lines. And then we took it from there um, and continue uh, studying the like budding efficiency both in um, Western rods and doing um, different growth curves, so infecting or replication curves, infecting cells, um, and looking how the virus was replicating throughout time, as well as um, measuring specific infectivity. And we also wanted to answer a question of, is it the location of VS that is important for VSV budding, or is it also the amount of VS that is important for um, VSV budding? So we use cells that have an overall decrease in the amount of PS in the cells and also repeated the budding um, assays to see to be able to answer that question. And basically, like short, long story short, we were able to see that the location of PS seems to play a role in the budding of VSV, but it's not necessarily the amount of PS. So we didn't see any difference between 
decrease or increases in amount of PS in the cells. So now we're working towards answering, okay, how specifically is this happening? And is it is specifically in the cells that we're studying or we also have other cell lines with the same knockouts to be able to study and see how it recapitulates. I see. And can you tell us a little bit more about sort of the budding of a virus like VSV? How does it actually occur? Are, um, are proteins sort of assembling just at the plasma membrane or do they assemble in sort of like the Golgi or the ergic? Like where, what is exact, what's happening? Yeah, so for a lot of envelope viruses, and that's something that it's very important um, in relation to phosphatidylserine, they acquire their envelope from the cell membrane of the whole cell. And for VSV, it buds out of the plasma membrane. So it acquires, so it starts whenever the different proteins of VSV start replicating inside the cell. The matrix protein and the glycoprotein co-localize at the plasma membrane and form these like microdomains where that starts like the initial curvature of the budding process and then eventually the particles come out. So that's one of the main reasons why we're, I'm studying the matrix protein because it's one of the main drive, driving components of the budding process of BSV. I see. And so when you talk about it's the localization of the lipids that might make a difference. Do you mean the localization in the microdomain or outside the microdomain or what, what exactly do you mean? So um, we're mostly looking between the inner and outer leaflet of the plasma membrane. So there are different um, enzymes that help localize the phospholipids between the inner and out outer leaflet. So there are um, bases and bases. So bases would take different phospholipids from the outer leaflet to the inner leaflet and then scramblases um, non-specifically scramble between the inner and outer leaflet. So the main thing that we're doing is basically modifying those split bases and scramblases to um, have different amounts of PS in the outer leaflet and then see how that affects the virus. I see, and how do you modify them? Do you use drugs or CRISPR or how do you do it? So mostly like in terms of like increasing amount of in the outer leaflet, you could use um, drugs that induce um, apoptosis because one of the hallmarks of apoptosis, it is increased PS in the outer leaflet. But mostly we use CRISPR. So we have CRISPR cell lines that have now been established where we did knockouts for either scramblase, specific scramblase called expirate. And then uh, flipases, we have a flipase subunit called CDC50A. Um, so this, we have this like established cell lines. So we have the wild type that have moderate amount of PS in the outer leaflet, the knockouts for X-ray that would have less amount of PS in the outer leaflet, and then our knockouts for CDC50A, which would have more PS in the outer leaflet. And then we can, we're able to compare them. I see. Interesting. And this information, can it be used to understand sort of the pathogenesis of the virus, or is it more to sort of optimize the virus as a vaccine platform? Sort of what are you using the knowledge for? Yeah, I would say definitely a little bit of both. Um, our main driving like reason to do this project is more know about how this virus um, replicates and bots out of cells normally, especially because it's a virus that it's used as a control for a lot of experiments, especially because um, there are multiple papers that claim that PS doesn't enter cells through PS receptors. And so a lot of people use it as a like normal negative control of this virus should not be affected. However, 
um, we don't necessarily know too much about how the virus got, gets out of the cell. But definitely the knowledge eventually could lead to like better enhancement of the vaccines that are available since like knowing more about this virus can make us um, or can allow us to like take that um, function for our advantage. Right, right. And I guess I'm not as familiar with sort of the family of viruses that are associated with VSV. Are there others that cause infections in humans or is it mainly just livestock? I'll say it's mainly most livestock. The um, most like associated virus to VSV, um, they're like from the rat day family. So it would be um, rabies virus. It's like the most common unknown virus. But yes, um, it would be mainly um, livestock. And then VSV like mainly infects um, livestock. And it does infect humans sometimes, but it only causes full-life symptoms. Okay, so can you tell us then a little bit about, I guess, what you're thinking about for the future? So are you still sort of, you know, thinking about or pursuing an academic career or do you have other interests? I would say one of my main options is going into academia and becoming a professor with a lab, but I also enjoy um, mentorship and outreach. And like, for me, getting to the point of grad school, um, I have to like thank a lot of um, programs and people that were mentoring people from underrepresented communities. So I feel like that's something that has been very important for me um, throughout. And I definitely take um, the time to like give back and like try to help people um, that are now going into the process of like applying to grad school. So um, that is something that I'm exploring career wise, like either being some sort of like dean of diversity and inclusion in a major research institution or working with different nonprofit organizations that like help students um, achieve their goals in science. Right. So what is that like then? I would say one of the main issues um, comes from lack of opportunity. I feel like um, a lot of underrepresented minorities don't have access to the same type of opportunities that other overrepresented um, people in science have. And I feel like what that's one of the main reasons I always like to say um, I was not lucky to get to grad school I like had privilege that I could find opportunities that were available for me to get to this point Um, but I feel like one of the main things is like not only the opportunities to get to the same place but we're often held to a different standard where it's like you need to work even harder to get to the same place that other people um, can easily get to. Um, And I feel like just overall, it's like hard to be in an environment where you don't see necessarily yourself being represented all the time. And it can also like contribute to like imposter syndrome of like, am I even supposed to be here? Like, should I like, am I good enough to be here? Um, and I feel like that's so important why like representation, having role models that like look like you, it's important, but also having the initiative and having been in an environment that like takes or puts effort into making an environment more inclusive for people and uh, holding people accountable for their actions um, to make sure that like everyone is in an inclusive and like welcoming environment. Yeah. I mean, do you think that there's more awareness of this now? So like right now, I think this week is black and micro. And so people are posting out about who they are and, you know, sort of 
emphasize uh, giving lectures and things like that, that sort of uh, show, uh, you know, the diversity of people that are black and micro and things like that. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's, uh, it's better now or do we still have a long way to go? <laughs> I feel like it's a little bit of both. We have definitely, I feel like made some progress, but we have a, a, like a long way to go. And I feel like we need to work on translating this like um, different initiatives and like opportunities that are growing now and translating them into like established things and like it shouldn't be just like one week of like um uplifting black people in microbiology but it should be like a whole year of uplifting black people in microbiology so definitely i feel like there is progress being made and that makes me very happy to hear um but i also feel like there are a lot of things we should um like work on for the next generations so um, what has this past year, year and a half been like for you as a virologist? So obviously it's been sort of an unusual time living through a pandemic. <laughs> What's it been like for you? I feel like this past year for me has been like a little, um, I feel like crazy is the only way to explain it, right? Like the pandemic started and like everything was locked down and I feel like it was, the pandemic started right whenever I was joining my lab. So I spent like, I think two full months going to the lab officially as a new member and then everything locked down and I, I felt like I was like starting to get used to like what a PhD was like and then all of a sudden it stopped um so that was definitely like a hard thing to like go by um however I feel like once we like were able to like go back into the lab and I was able to like pick up everything I feel like things were getting better and just like Social interaction really helps for people to like um, be able to like, I don't know, be more productive and be more like happy overall. I do have to say like, I, this last semester, like I did see a lot of things that I was working on, like pay off. Like I was able to, um, I was like privileged enough to get like different di fellowships to like fund my PhD, which was really exciting. And like, I just got, many good news that like it's really nice to like see I feel like whenever you see like your hard work like paying off um so that has like been really exciting and I'm also like going through the process of like I had my first committee meeting and I'm having my call soon I feel like it's just a very eventful like year I would say for me <laughs> Great, great. And actually, can you talk a little bit about what are quals and sort of what are the steps that you have to do in your institution just to even to um, start qualify for your uh, PhD? <laughs> yes. So definitely whenever you start a PhD, we start with like a set of classes that you need to take. So like my first two years was mostly like taking classes and doing some like research in the lab, but like managing the two of them. Um, now this summer I like finally finished my classes so now I'm focused on having my first committee meeting was basically explaining what I have been working on so far and um, I had to write a prospectus which was basically a proposal of what I look my like thesis to look like and now uh, for my qualifying exam I'm basically um, expanding that proposal so basically I have to submit uh, a grant or like a format grant from um, like an NIH R21. So it will be around like six to like eight pages um, going over like the approach and like the innovation of my project and like what specific experiments I like I'm planning to do 
what are the expected results, what controls I should um, use, and also how is this going to affect the field. So it's basically to like show that you not only like have a plan of like what you expect your PhD to look like, but also that you're able to like visualize what is the importance of your project and like what are certain controls that would make your conclusions more um, like solidified. Um, and then once I submit that written report or written calls to my committee, they will review it and then I do a small presentation in front of them, um, basically defending my report. And then it's around like, I don't know, one hour of them asking me questions, hopefully not too hard um, <laughs> um, about the research that I, I wrote about. And then after that, they, um, talk together and get to the conclusion, do I pass to go um, be a PhD candidate or I do not pass to be a PhD candidate? Hopefully it's the first one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good luck, good luck. And I guess, so since you had mentioned that sort of you uh, had gotten to graduate school and then that's essentially when things had shut down, um, how did you uh, end up sort of, uh, you know, staying in touch with people do you have family back in Puerto Rico? Like, how did you manage to kind of get all that accomplished during the shutdown? Yeah, so like definitely pretty much most of my family is back in Puerto Rico. So lockdown was really hard, especially because I didn't think it was going to last so long. So I didn't think it would be a good idea to go home. And then I was stuck for months. Um, so that was really hard. Um, good thing is we have access to technology. So <laughs> we could do Zoom and um, FaceTime calls and, you know, make sure that everyone is doing okay. And also just like, I feel like I highlighted the importance of just like access to nature and like going on walks and like being able to like have time to like um, really explore new hobbies, I feel like, and um, find new ways to like entertain yourself. And I also feel like to some extent, not to be like extra optimistic about the lockdown because I feel like it was definitely horrible for a lot of people and it wasn't a great thing that happened. But it also, it was a good, like almost like slow down of pace of like thinking of like, oh, this is a new thing I'm doing and like getting accustomed to like being a new place. I feel like also I had just moved. So it gave me some opportunity to explore where I was living and like kind of like keep in touch with the people that I met here, which were more accessible to me. Um, so yeah, it was definitely uh, a journey, but I feel like we're hopefully soon in the other side. <laughs> right, yeah. And uh, what does your family say now when you talk about um, go, uh, going for your PhD? So you're clearly not doing medicine, at least not now. What do mm -hmm. they think about it? <laughs> I feel like it was definitely uh, like a process for them to like accept that. I feel like at the end of the day, parents just want like the best for you and like to have like a good, secure job. And I feel like once they like saw that I could like achieve things by pursuing a PhD, they were happy with that. It's funny because um, like now both of my parents are like asking me with the pandemic, like, what do you think about this? What do you think? Like, what should I do? And like, now I'm like the go-to for the family to like advise on viruses. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm only a third year PhD, but <laughs> it's nice to like see them that they like trust my like um, knowledge. 
All right. Well, um, thank you very much. Um, we appreciate talking uh, to you and good luck on your uh, call exams. And I'm sure we will hear from you again soon. Thank you. This has been Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Thackray, and thanks for listening. You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon Music, Spotify, and other podcast providers, or at lmtv.podbean.com.